I'd like to begin my message today by inviting your participation that we together in the next few moments will reenact one of the glorious scenes of Christmas found in the Gospels. Are you up for it? You sound a bit hesitant. It's going to be okay. Everybody stand, please. Everybody stand. Everybody stand. Upstairs in the balcony. Now, we have up there in the balcony the heavenly choirs of angels. You don't have to sing, don't worry. <laughs> heavenly choirs of angels. And we have the earthly, earthly response down here on the lower level. And here it is on the screen, you will find Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 14. And this is what the angels declared. Now, I will give you a rehearsal, those are upstairs, and this is your line while the rest of us remain silent. Glory to God in the highest. Practice, everybody. One, two, three. Glory to God in the highest. Stronger. Glory to God. And now you reply, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Ready? And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay, we're ready. Here we go. All together. Oh, not all together, as I just showed you. All right. One, two, three. Glory to God in the highest. And on You did well. Give Jesus a big praise, everybody. Take your seats, please. We're going to be looking at the glory of God that appears in the Christmas story. Mostly hidden, but it does appear. As Graham Kendrick shows, both meekness and majesty are found in Christ. Humility and glory are found side by side in the very Christ child whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. So I want to highlight the hidden glory in the story and demonstrate how that your life also on a day-to-day -day basis is punctuated with pockets of glory shining through into your life. And these little pockets of glory one day will be openly revealed for everybody to see as the glory of the Lord covers the earth. I've been speaking from Philippians chapter 2 and in the last two messages I've related that to the outworking of the Christmas story. Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 describes how Jesus laid aside his majesty and humbled himself even to death, and God exalted him. So let's read from verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory 
of God the Father. It wasn't exactly Christmas shopping, but I did have the opportunity to go recently to the Mac store and try and find an adapter that because of changes in Apple didn't work on my new machine. I was a little bit confused, a tiny bit irritated, as you hardly ever get irritated, but anyway, there I was. And the, the kind man was trying to explain to me, oh, oh I, I think you're moving from a lightning adapter to USB-C adapter. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but then he said this, sir, I think you should go wireless. I said, why? He said, the world is changing. Hmm. I thought about that. Am I being left behind? <laughs> but you know, the world is changing and the world has changed. Think about now the nearly two decades of this first, uh, two, 20 years of this 21st century. There have been enormous changes, technological, social, political, ecological, and change is everywhere. But not all change is progress. Definitely, it doesn't automatically ensure transformation. Today, no matter how many changes we've seen in recent decades, centuries even, the same basic human issues keep coming up again and again. So I think there is a kind of myth associated with progress. The idea, newer equals better, change equals good. However, I do think something else is going on. God is at work bringing about His plan, which is more than progress, more than mere change, but it is transformation. And in this transformation, the new is made more glorious than the old. Even the new itself shall be replaced by what cannot spoil, fade, be destroyed, disappoint. And what we will see as the glory of God will one day be so manifest in, a, in an amazing climactic consummation in which the point at which Everything is made complete. Everything is finalized. Everything is brought to its final glorious purpose. And all human aspiration, both individual and national and global, every human desire, even the desire of nations, will be satisfied in this fulfillment of the plan of God to make this world and everything in it glorious. Even you who were born to be glorious. And the point at which this plan was activated, we are focusing on at this Christmas time, it is the Christmas story when Christ came into the world. He had been here many, many times in the past, appearing perhaps in the burning bush, manifesting as the angel of the Lord, and also anyway, being God himself, Christ the Son of God, 
was always present in his creation. But at this point, something else happened, something unique. He didn't just come spiritually, but he came physically. And not just in a temporary body, so to speak. The body that he was born with is the body that he has now, albeit translated into glory. He came permanently. And in this series on true greatness, we've traced the steps of the heavenly Christ who left every outward show of his heavenly glory and descended to this earth in all the reality, both inward and outward, of humble humanity. His birth, his servanthood, his humility, his goodness, and his grace were visible to all in his obedience unto death, even death on a cross. All that is visible in the events of Christmas are seen and enlighten us into what true greatness is. And we also know that we're we're humbly, humbly treading that path of greatness as followers of Christ because we're following in his footsteps. But as well as the humility, the humiliation, the temporary obscuring of the form of divinity, the outward show of it, there is in the story hidden pockets of glory. And sometimes they're not too hidden at all. I enjoy art, painting. I've had the privilege of being in different parts of the world at various Rembrandt exhibitions. There was one in in London not so very long ago. And Rembrandt, one of the great old masters, had a brilliant way of working with light. He was the master of light. And when he paints the nativity, in fact, he painted about 13 of them, And every one of them has this common theme. It's all about light. And if you notice from this behind me, the copy of that painting, the light is coming from a source. And the source is Christ. Now you got to know that this is artistic license because there in the stable, There was no light, maybe a smelly old lamp, but Jesus wasn't born in the copy and image of a glow worm. He was not glowing, not with a physical light. But I suppose Rembrandt is making a statement of faith. And I don't know for certain, but I kind of feel that that statement of faith has some authenticity. He is saying Jesus is the light of the world and even here in this painting, which is called the adoration of the shepherds, Christ is the focus of adoration and we adore him 
because he is God manifested in the flesh. So no wonder there are pockets of glory peeping through like sunlight on a cloudy day. The many moments and the prolonged unfoldings of God's glory we see everywhere in the gospel story, the Christmas events. All these are deliberately, purposefully recorded as signs of the glory that was rightfully his and the glory that we should all see restored to him in the future life. This glory was after all planned by God because it was predicted by the prophets. The prophet Isaiah is one of the most majestic and poetically powerful of all the Old Testament prophets. Uh, we need but dip into a few of his prophecies to make this point. The point being that it was always about the glory of God. He came from the glory. He went to, back to the glory and to reapply some poetry. He came trailing clouds of glory which were at some time visible. But the prophet speaks about it in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 4. He prophesies and says of the coming of Messiah, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places are plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Awesome words ringing out across time, across the generations and we sense them with all the authority and finality in which they were originally spoken. What's encouraging to me is he begins with the valleys. Are you in a deep, dark valley today just because it's Christmas time? Doesn't mean to say everything's going well with you. And for some people are not most miserable at Christmas. Those are Scrooges. And I'm talking about people who have circumstances which are particularly painful at Christmas. How wonderful to know that the Bible says that when Jesus came, his first job was not to put you down, but to lift you up. Every valley shall be exalted, pointing out the trajectory of your true birth and life, born to be glorious. Isaiah 60, we've used it often this year in prayer and in conferences. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So here we see it's not just that the glory that is His, but the glory that He will shine, His glory will shine upon us and we will enjoy the benefits of His divine majesty, His beauty, His power, His fulfilment and everything else that He does. <coughs> Isaiah 9, halfway through verse 1. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Oh yes, we're going to find glory in the Christmas story. Later on, Isaiah 9 verse 6, For to us a child is born, 
to us a son is given and the government shall be on his shoulder. Verse seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. I've only got one word to describe that and it's glorious. Amen and amen. So the glory that's in the Christmas story was first predicted by the prophets, but then it was proclaimed by angels. And if they've kept that little bit into the final editing of this, of this video, you will see it if you're watching um, later on. We reenacted that. We appointed the balcony attendees as heavenly angels and the rest of us were on the earth but we reenacted it. Luke chapter two, verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on the earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Oh yes, the angels proclaimed it. I also believe that the glory of Christ was prefigured and even presented in the stars. Matthew 2 verses 1 to 3. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. What's going on here? These wise men were able to determine certain signs in the heavens, certain seasons by God's authority. Nothing to do with pagan astrology and divination. But they saw his star. They saw the sign of Messiah. How could that be? Genesis 1 verse 14, when the stars and heavenly bodies were created, it says, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons. A season is an appointed time for days and years. Now quite logically, this relates to astrogeographical data. We still can navigate by the stars. Also data according to the positioning of the heavenly stars and the constellations will tell us what month we're in whether it's summer or winter, northern, southern hemisphere, there is a whole range of information about the natural realm through the stars. But is there such a thing as astro-spiritual data? Could the heavens be used by God to signal the spiritual time, the spiritual moment, that opportune season when Christ came into the world, just as it indicates natural seasons? Psalm 19 verses one through four says, the heavens declare the glory of God 
and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. So of course, we see the glory of the creator reflected in the created things, yes, but it goes further. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are their words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 10 refers to this voice saying not just that it was the sign of God the Creator, but it was a celestial indication of the gospel itself. How can that be? To be open with you, I don't really know. But there is an interesting evangelical New Testament scholar by the name of Michael Heiser. And he points out that in Revelation chapter 12, where you have the woman with 12 stars around her head and, and, and all the other descriptions, even a dragon, that all this relates to the precise moment when Christ was born, indicating to within 80 minutes a heavenly prophetic promise of the exact spot and the exact time when Christ was to be born. I've done a bit of research on this and found that it's a theory, it may well be true. The signs and seasons indicated by the heavens. And what is interesting is that on a certain date. September the 11th, actually. Sorry about Happy Christmas, but never mind. 3 BC, which is a controversial date, not impossible, but 3 BC. All those constellations came together. And there was within that alignment an 80-minute window when the moon passed beneath the feet of the woman represented in that constellation, that pattern. And so could it be that it was this that the wise men saw in the stars? Maybe it was a one-off. Maybe this was only one occasion when God spoke through heavenly signs. But I tell you, they saw something in the stars, in the heavens, that caused them to leave their home and make that long journey finally to find the star reappear over the place where the child lay. Astronomers tell me that Jupiter behaves in a wandering fashion when viewed from Earth exactly in that right constellation. That's some of the technical background. And I don't know, but it must be something like that because God proclaimed the gospel. He announced the birth of the Messiah to the whole world through the heavens. But also, the glory of Christ was perceived 
by those who were there. The apostles, the eyewitnesses, the gospel writers. And the whole narrative shows the glory of God breaking through here and there when Christ comes. Of course, the gospel writers were schooled in Old Testament prophecy and were in close contact with the eyewitnesses. But they very kindly bring it out and show us that this is no ordinary child. He may not be glowing like the Christmas candlelight, Christmas candlelight glow sticks that we will use tonight. But there was a glory. There was a glory that was revealed. And people saw it. And people believed. And they knew that this was not just the light of the world, but the hope of the world. And because of that, we enjoy it also. As followers of Christ, we follow in his footsteps. We, like him, are born to be glorious, but not glorious with his own glory that belongs to him as the Son of God. But he allows his glory to shine into our lives and that glory, the glory which shall be revealed on that day, is already beginning to show. I'm not suggesting that tonight or even over the Christmas period, you can switch off the lights, switch off the Christmas lights and watch yourselves glow in the dark. If that happens, go straight to hospital. But I am suggesting that in so many ways which are real and tangible, God's glory is seen in us now. Not as it shall be seen then, for we do not now appear as we shall appear. Then how shall we appear? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. It's a passage in which Paul describes the resurrection. And he uses the degrees of glory to get the home the point that we're going to be like Jesus in resurrection. Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. You're going to be raised in glory. I told you. Born to be glorious. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. For if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it's not that the spirit is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also those who are of heaven. What does that mean? Simple. You're born for glory. Just as we have borne the image of the man of, of dust, 
we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. No wonder the theme of the entire Christmas narrative is glory to God in the highest, both hidden and open glory in the story. You also, in your day-to-day life, you'll have encounters with His glory. Most often, the glory will be hidden. I mean, what happened to those shepherds? They were looking after their sheep. Heaven opened. They saw the Christ child and looking back after their sheep. And the heavens were no longer visible to them. There are moments when God gives us a gap into the heavenlies. And even if you've never seen an angel, it doesn't mean to say they're not all around you. The Bible says that we entertain angels sometimes unawares. Maybe sometimes God will allow us, Simon, to see into the spiritual realm. Every little time that's happened, a tiny peak. I'm amazed at the angels of God, the spiritual beings, those who are sent to serve God's people because we are heirs of this glory. Maybe you don't have what you now consider to be my vivid imagination, but at least have Bible truth in your pocket. I tell you, there are angels all around that take care of us. And when we praise, my, 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 they praise. And they celebrate. I can imagine one looking down now and saying, look, look, mama, you were born for the glory. Amen. Mama woke up now. (laughs) Because they might even know more about it than we do because they dwell in the presence of God and they see His glory. We now only see darkly and and sometimes with symbolism, but our faith is strong and the education and illumination and the revelation that the Word of God gives us, gives us confidence to say, today His glory is in my life. Oh no, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. Right now, we seem to be out of sync with the rest of society. There appears to be the dwindling influence of Christian faith in our nation and continent. There seems to be a disinterest and apathy on behalf of society that's not altogether true because people are hungrier now for God than ever before. But one thing is sure, their eyes are on us. Why? Because they want to see if it is true. To put it in a language that maybe they would not use, say, well, you say you belong to God, where is the glory? Let us see. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book many years ago called The Church Before a Watching World. 
and their eyes are on us. Why? Because they would love for it to be true. If they could see that it's true, they would embrace it immediately. But there is doubt, darkness and unbelief in their minds. That's why their eyes are open to us to see. Where's the glory? Where's the glory? Where's the evidence that we are different? Where's the love that we give in place of hate? Where's the inclusion we give in place of exclusion? Where's the grace we give in place of judgment? Where's the blessing we give for cursing? Where is our joy in times of sorrow? You know, people of prayer never worry. I remember I was going through a very difficult time. No, it was more difficult than that. You've not been to a pantomime recently, have you? I can't remember the difficulty now, honestly, I can't remember what it was. But I know at the time it was pretty painful. And my friend who didn't know Jesus at the time said, aren't you worried? I said, no. Why are you not worried? Then I began to be worried that I wasn't worried. <laughs> but people of prayer never worry. And when they see us increasingly, you know what they see? They see the glory. It might be measured in the way that we demonstrate God's way is best. God's way works because God's way is right. Truth and wisdom are twins. I think many national and international problems would be much better resolved by taking a leaf out of the old book. Either way, hidden or obvious, the spirit of glory is on us. Every answer to prayer, every close encounter with Christ, every time we bless, every time we give, every time we Forgive every time we love, every time we trust, every time we obey him when it doesn't feel good. The angels are shouting, glory to God in the highest. And as we very often, not always, but very often, as that happens, we feel something of that glory resonating in our heart. You are part of the Christmas story because you are born for glory, to be glorious through Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory.